Hey guys, welcome to the Neglected Podcast. This podcast is not to change your mind, but to invite you into somebody else's narrative. This is a podcast to give a voice to the neglected. It is also an opportunity for all of us to engage. Hi, Neglected Podcast listeners. I am your host, Giovanna Javis, and I am here today with the special guest, Shalina Cook. Yes. Jones, Shalina Jones. Jones Cook. Yeah, Shalina. Well, it's... I messed it up. I'm so oh, sorry. No, it's okay. I don't have Cook a problem Jones. with that. My husband might though. No, I'm, so... <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Jones. It's Shalina okay. Cook Jones. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Shalina Cook Jones. And I met you actually at um, man, it was last year. I don't even remember. It was pre-COVID. Yeah. This year's been wild. Yeah. But <laughs> I met you at, a, at the love rally that we, there was a march around Daffin Park. That's after. right. Stop the violence. Yeah. Yes. And Absolutely. so I met you there and then I started following you on Facebook and I was thinking of people that would be good for the podcast and just from seeing what you've posted and just seeing oh. a lot of the things that you've said, I was just really interested in having you on and you said yes. And I'm very thankful for that. As always, I'm thankful for anybody that's willing to come and share their stories. So, Shalina, let's just start off with um, just tell me about like where you're from sure. and your family background. Sure, sure. First of all, I want to say I'm really glad to be here and just honored. And so um, even before we kind of started the show, just being able to have real substantive conversation makes all the difference. But as you said, my name is Shalina Jones, Shalina Cook Jones. Um, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn in the late 70s, early 80s. So I guess I'm dating myself. But um, I uh, am, I was born, I guess, uh, to a single mom in inner city Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And um, let's see, I have a lot of siblings whom I love, but was raised with one younger brother. Mm -hmm. And he's nine years younger than me. So um, that's where I'm from. I went to, after uh, graduating from high school in Brooklyn, um, I set my sights on Atlanta, mostly because Atlanta was, at that time, that was like pre-1996 Olympics and Atlanta was the place to be. And I was really excited about living someplace warm, right? Because yeah. I'd grown <laughs> oh, yes. up in snow and all that stuff and, New and traffic and New York City transit and all that stuff. So, um, I set my sights on Atlanta and I went to Spelman College in Atlanta and um, I was there, let's see, from 95 to 99. Mm -hmm. And then I graduated from there, went to law school in Athens, Georgia from 99 to 2002. And I've been, you know, kind of practicing law ever since. And uh, through a lot of different stops and, and life circumstances kind of ended up here in Savannah. So. Glad to be here. I've been here for a little over 10 years now. Let's see. I always mark it by my son's age because he had not turned one when we moved here and he's mm -hmm. almost 11 now. So nice. Well, yeah. I mean, you've been here 10 years. Savannah tends to claim people if you're here for ah, a little bit. We're like, it depends uh, on who you ask. <laughs> well, I'm, from, I'm from Savannah. I feel like we claim you. All I right. You well, listen, now. if you claim me, <laughs> do, that's I good do. enough for me. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. And so what? led you to pursue law? Oh, wow. Um, there really is a specific story. A specific, there's a specific memory that I link it back to. And then there's kind of like a broader um, philosophy, I think. Um, starting with the specific first, uh, when I was, when I graduated from the fifth grade, so I was on my way to middle school, mm -hmm. <clears throat> 
I was on my way to my high school, or to that, excuse me, middle school graduation. Kidding. Is that K through five? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Elementary school graduation. And we got into a really bad car accident. So I was sitting in the front seat. And that was around the time where maybe seat belts were installed in cars, but nobody cared if you used them. Mm-hmm. And so there was a song on the radio, Color Me Bad. And I, it was, they had this song out that I want to set you up. Yeah. I couldn't sing this song any other time, but because it was my graduation day, my mom said it was okay. okay. So my aunt was driving and we got into a really bad wreck. And I went, uh, my, my face went through the windshield, broke the glass. And um, I was unconscious. Um, As a result of that, my family and I, everyone that was in the car, ended up filing a personal injury suit because the person turned in front of us and we had the light. Um, And our lawyer was a guy named Mike Kramer. I'll never forget him. And his, he practiced law with his father Mm -hmm. in New York. And even though I was probably eight at the time, I don't know. However, kids, however old they are in the in the um, at that age, maybe ten. Um, I just remember him kind of coming in, just kind of breaching my world at the time. First person that I'd met like him, mm-hmm. um, and of course he came every time we saw him. We were in court, or he was suited and briefcased, and all that wonderful stuff. And I remember feeling. Even though I didn't know, of course, the nuts and bolts of everything that was happening at the time of legalities and stuff, I felt like, I guess the eight to 10 year old explanation I got was that he was there to help. Yeah. And I really felt like he was. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting down with him and having the conversation, him asking what I be, what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I told him that I wanted to be a lawyer, really, because he yeah. was. Mm-hmm. And I felt helped by him, um, partly because, you know, my family at the time, uh, we grew. I grew up in what some would call the lower socioeconomic bracket, and um, as is often the case, you know, culturally and and economically, and where we were at that time, people kind of see lawsuits as windfalls because you've never received that kind of money. Yeah. Um, and it sounded like a lot for me in my ten-year-old brain. I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to be rich." Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't getting money at the time. It went into a trust fund, but um, for me, until I turned 18. But um, to me, I saw that as help. I yeah. saw that what we had was so little. And here was this person who was coming into our life and because of this tragedy uh, was going to make us rich <laughs> in 10-year-old mm-hmm. terms. And mm-hmm. so um, it wasn't so much. Um, so it really wasn't about wealth then. It was about helping. Yeah. And that's where I decided I, I, I wanted to be a lawyer. So I, I kind of started thinking I wanted to either be a social worker, a detective, or a lawyer. But the lawyer thing kind of always took, stuck. And my mom would say, you know, you'd be really good at that. And so I was one of those people who kind of carried that on, um, was fortunate enough to kind of he- hold on to that dream. Very few kids ever become what they say they want to be when they're a kid. And I'm lucky enough to have had that happen. Yeah. So that's the specific, that's the specific story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the larger philosophical part comes from a different kind of story, mm-hmm. but the same era. I remember um, being about the same age and growing up 
in in poverty, in need. Um, and I remember at that time, you know, my mom had a caseworker. Yeah. And I remember that at that time we had to go down to City Hall or whatever it was every maybe twice a year to see the caseworker. And my mother hated going. Mm-hmm. And it was because the caseworker was demeaning. Now, sometimes caseworkers, like social caseworkers, would show up at your house. They were known in that era to do stuff like ask you who you were sleeping with and where the where the child's father was. And I was a single child. I was the only child at the time. And um, I just remember that my mother hated going. And she hated going because it was it was demeaning. You know, her social worker, her caseworker made her feel so small yeah. uh, for being, you know, a young unwed mother. Mm-hmm. And um, to me, even though I didn't have the words for it at the time, I felt I realized much later that that was about power, you yeah. know. Um, and I also realized I remember it was a long train ride. And I remember riding back with my mom and she would cry all the way home. And I remember thinking to myself, I will I never want somebody to make me feel that way for I never want to give someone else, I never want someone else to have the, the, the ability to make me feel small. And so I think um, for me, that was um, a memory that sticks out in my mind mm-hmm. because whatever job or profession it was that could get me farthest away from poverty, that's what I wanted to do. And so again, being a young person, I was just like, I wanna be a lawyer. It wasn't until I became a lawyer that I realized there are a lot of lawyers out there that are broke. Um, but um, yeah. And of course, developed a lot of other reasons for wanting to practice law. But those are two of the memories that really stick out in my mind the most that kind of pushed me in this direction. And then of course, my mother saying that, that I could do it, that I was able to do it, and that I would be good at it. Yeah. Mm. And so law school is long. So yeah. it sounds like you had a lot of drive. And then just even with those two things pushing you towards that. So I do have two questions. But the first question is, as a woman that grew up in poverty, what do you see that maybe people who didn't grow up in that, like what what are something that you see that maybe we don't see who didn't grow up in that environment? Mm. Um. Having been now, I guess, on both sides of the socioeconomic spectrum, it gives me a wider vantage point for viewing people in poverty. Mm. I think the biggest misconception that people have is that most people who are poor want to be poor. Mm. And there's a misconception that people who are poor and people who are public assistance, they're lazy or that they don't want to work. And I have found it to be the exact opposite. My life experience is such that um, you know, if I went back to my grandmother, my grandmother is originally from the South. Mm-hmm. Um, she's from South Carolina and she got married and had kids, moved up to the North, got an industrial job. And she and her sister did the same thing and they kind of built a family together, um, helping each other, right? Um, and I, so what that means is that I grew up in a family with people who were hardworking, Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother instilled my work, the work ethic that I have. And my grandmother's sister, my auntie S, I lovingly call her, she instilled in me this idea that being a woman or being a woman of color is not a barrier. Yeah. 
Um, and she instilled, I guess, resilience and strength. And so <clears throat> it I find it odd being on, you know, kind of being outside of that and outgrown that experience. I find that to be a, bis a big misconception that people who are poor or the underclass of our society, that they're there because they want to be there. Now, that is not to say that... Um, that that's true in every case. There are some people who will take advantage of a system if they can. I mean, but on the other side of that, we have people who take advantage of the tax system as well. So if mm -hmm. that's the case, then one one group of people is no better than the other. But um, I find that to be a big, mis big misconception. Um, and I found I have found that most people, if given the right education and opportunity and resources. Yeah. for advancement will take advantage of it mm -hmm. um, if they can and if it's feasible for them to do so. And I just think, um, I think that's something that's often overlooked. That's probably the biggest insight that I would, that I think, you know, people need to, to think about more critically. Yeah. No, I like that. I love that you shared that because I think that that's a proximity issue is because if there's no proximity, then it's easy to dehumanize the the someone that you don't know or something that you don't understand and kind of loop things all together. Sure. Because it's like what you're hinting at is that it's very nuanced, is that, it's it, yes, there might be a person who is there for taking advantage of the system. And so let's, let's say that mm. maybe that is the case, but what if we looked at it like they're doing the best with what they have? Because I would be willing to bet that if we were able to come into proximity with them, there's a story there. There's sure. more than just like, oh, I'm some person that like decided that one day I would rather just not work and just make, I think that we, we kind of loop all things together and then we just don't have the nuance to understand those things. So I think that just what you were describing of how you grew up of being surrounded by hardworking people and that not being the case, it wasn't as if they, they just wanted that is more of a lack of resources or a lack of education or access to certain levels of education. Because right. I think that, yeah, if a, a kid goes to school, but if it's based off property tax, pro their school probably doesn't have. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the even bigger thing that people don't talk about is possibility. Mm. Uh, you will limit your experience if you don't believe something is possible, right? Mm. If no one has ever told you it's possible. And this is why it's really important to have, to be for children to be exposed, like I was, to magnet programs, to have teachers and guidance counselors to tell you that things are possible. Um, for, I'll give you an example. Um, I went to Spelman College mm -hmm. for undergrad, and um, I'll tell you why I went to Spelman. I went to Spelman because I sat next to a classmate of mine. Her name was Aisha Holder. Love her and miss her. If she ever listens to this, she she's never heard this story. Um, I sat next to her in my Latin class, and I've always gone to schools for gifted and Mm -hmm. and gifted magnet schools for gifted children. And she was really smart. 
I mean, really smart. I was one of those kids who just happened to be smart. Mm -hmm. Like I like, had a lot of raw talent, but she was smart and she was studious. And I remember sitting next to her in high school and in, in maybe ninth grade and in Latin and saying, uh, what, you know, what are you working on so intensely? And she's like, I'm working. I'm, I really, really want to go to Spelman College. And I thought to myself, well, if she wants to go, there must be a good school. Yeah. And I'm like, Aisha, you're not going to have a problem getting in anywhere. And she said, no, it's my top school. And at that time, of course, I I'd done the research on it after that. I'd done the research on it myself. My, and Spelman College was um, number seven in Money Magazine and U.S. News and World Report. And it was, you know, one of the top schools in the nation. Of course, I really like the fact that it was a historically black college. Mm -hmm. And so um, to me, those, those were the only two requirements. <laughs> like yeah. it was a really good school academically. Um, it was well-renowned and, and well-respected. And that it was a historically black college. And for me, I was like, all right, check the box. That's my dream school. Yeah. And I make that point. I tell that story and I say that to say this. Unless and until you believe that an alternate reality is possible, you won't pursue it. Why would you? Yeah. If I, if I thought it was possible for me to walk through this wall to get to the bathroom on the other side, I would do it. Yeah. But... The fact that it's made out of concrete tells me it's not possible, so I wouldn't even try that. I'd look for the door and go all the way around. Mm -hmm. But but maybe that's what people in poverty are missing, possibility. Yeah. Not just resources, yes, they're missing that. And access and exposure, they're missing that too. But <clears throat> at some point, somebody has to come along and tell young children it's possible for yeah. you to live a different way. You know, I remember having a conversation with a young, when I was 12, in my apartment building. And I'm, when I was about, when I was about 11 or 12, uh, we moved out of a middle-class neighborhood and moved into the projects. And by projects, I mean New York City housing department. Mm -hmm. I mean, every apartment building that you see on Law & Order where they're chasing people up and down the stairs, like those are the kinds of apartment buildings that I lived in. So And so, well, I only ever lived in one, Gravesend Housing Projects in Coney Island. Um, I remember being very young, preteen or a teenager, and having a conversation with one of my friends about our future. Mm -hmm. And she said, girl, she lived on the third floor with her mother and her sister. Her mother was on public assistance. Mm -hmm. And she thought her plan for her future was like, well, I'm going to get pregnant so I can get me my own apartment. Mm, right. Yeah. That is the snapshot that people hear and make a judgment that, oh, she doesn't want to work. She's lazy. She's trifling. It's not about that. It's just about possibility. That's yeah. what she thought. That's what she learned was possible. Right. Based on her experience and what she saw in her home. And unless someone comes along and introduces an alternate possibility. Now, for me, by the time we moved to the projects. I was still on a magnet school track. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is I didn't go to a local high school. I went, I had, it took me an hour and a half to get to school every morning and an hour and a half to get home. And, but because I was in a different, on a different school track and had been academically tagged as being a promising student, I had different possibilities. Yeah. You know, um, and so if you play the hand you're dealt and 
the only cards in your hand are ones that suck, you're likely going to lose unless something happens and you get a more powerful card to play. Yeah. So. No, I love, first, I love all of your analogies. Those are great. Second, I love that you brought that up because that's something that I think most of us, and even I'll just speak for myself, I'm distantly aware of the power of like mentorship and having someone open the door and having someone encourage and speak life over you. I'm I'm distantly aware of that, but to add that in to like, it's not just so, it's necessary. Absolutely. That yes, resources, yes, education, but possibilities that, that having someone open that up to you that like, you know, you can be more and do more. And that makes like, like changes the context of like, even some of the things that I grew up in, like my parents, like I was middle-class growing up, but my parents like moved up classes. Um, And for them, it was all about education. Like, don't get wrapped up with no boys. Do not get pregnant. Go to school. Yes. And I'm like, I am 12. That's the like, I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about, but I am 12. Um, <laughs> I wish you would stop doing this. Like my grandma was really big on like, don't depend on nobody. Go to school, get yes. an education, get a degree. I don't care what it's in. And so for me, that's, that's only been. So to think of like that being like the, the door being open, like the door is wide open for you. Like mm-hmm. you can do things sure um that cha- that's a game changer to add that almost into the component because like i said i'm distantly aware of like mentorship boys and girls club all those things are so important but to know that like it's not just important like it's critical like it has to sure. be there um because if that's all you're ever exposed to and the only cards that you're given you're only doing the best with what you have sure and if we approach each other that way like to me that makes a world of difference it absolutely does And one of the things that often troubles me is that people, greater society will often look down on, you know, people in poverty and say they need help. Mm. But don't we all need help? Yeah. Don't we all need help? I mean, you you needed help when you had to learn to walk. Somebody had to teach you. Mm -hmm. There's good help and there's bad help. In other words, good help is, is exposure access, opportunity, and possibility. Bad help is enablement and um, enablement and everything that enablement entails. Um, Pity, you know, uh, that's bad help. And so, you know, creating possibility, you know, for me, in like using a mentorship context, like you explained, creating possibility is allowing someone allowing a young student to shadow me in my office you know for a summer yeah. right helping them you know mm-hmm. giving them access might be introducing them to my colleagues and coworkers and asking them to support her mm-hmm. um or him and then of course there are other kinds of help like giving scholarships and things like that but if we don't change our framework um, in terms of what help is, the difference between good help and bad help, we end up being a society that that says that we don't don't have to help anybody. And you you really do, right? Because if you really believe that you didn't create yourself, 
You didn't get here by yourself. Somebody helped you, whether they were related to you by blood, marriage, kinship, community. Somebody helped you, whether they mm. spoke a positive word or anything like that. And so help is it's a part of our social contract. It's a part of social responsibility. So, and we owe that to each other. That's the only way we're going to be a better country and yeah. nation. Yeah. No, and I think that that's difficult, especially when you brought up good help versus bad help, because I can see how if you're not aware, you can lean into bad help. Sure. If you're not aware that what you're doing is enabling, as opposed to restoring dignity and giving integrity and opening doors. Yeah. You know, people talk about a lot about, I was concerned and had a similar worry in response to, um, you know, when we started to see this outpouring of support in response, you know, as a part of a social justice effort in response to the George Floyd killing, I want to say that maybe, I don't know, maybe it was Starbucks or maybe it was um, Target and um, Amazon who said, you know, we're going to give a combined $20 million to Spelman and Morehouse. Now, as a Spelman graduate, I want to say I appreciate it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I also want to say that from a social justice standpoint, any help is better than no help, yeah. right? So we'll take it all day. But the kids at Spelman and Morehouse are not the ones that need your help, sweetie. Mm. They're not the ones that need your $20 million. And there are constructive ways you know, there are a lot of arguments and stuff about reparations and stuff like that and how that should be structured. What I'm saying is that if we want to see lasting change, you know, you have to understand the difference between good help and, and bad help, a good investment and a bad investment. And um, that's not to say that them giving $20 million to HBCUs is a bad investment. I'm not saying that at all. But, I, but it is to say that um, It is to say that if you want to see the kind of change that cha that um, transforms lives on a grand scale and on a lasting scale, um, you have to know the difference between enablement and opportunity. Yeah. You know? No, I think that's super important. Like any time we step into anything, and I think um, as just listening to you, you speak, I think that I, I can see how like your background combined with your education combined with all of those things really influences the way that you see and you probably see in more texture than most of us do or some people do just because you have those combined backgrounds. Um, and that's not to say that like that's anybody's fault. But I do think if you're not if you didn't grow up that way, that's not like an insult, like you can't do this work. Mm -hmm. But I know that for me personally, like yes, I'm a black woman, but I grew up middle class, which kind of like there's things I understand, but there's things that like, I remember the first time I started doing any kind of work in inner city and homelessness. And I did go into it with an open mind, but I did not fully understand. I did not fully understand that for a homeless person, it's not just go get a job. It's where am I going to get that check sent to? I don't have a bank account. I don't have a home. Like, and one doesn't just, you know, where am I going to take a shower? And being able to fully understand that there's things I don't understand. So maybe I should come in here with humbleness. Mm -hmm. And maybe I should come in here, not just pass out food, but like really seek out stories and really seek out um, empathizing as much as I can to my ability. Because I'm never going to fully understand. Mm -hmm. But it's foolish of me if I just go in and give clothes and give food. But then like I'm just, yes address the basic needs but am i addressing like the heart needs am i addressing like just humanizing you 
And maybe it does make a difference if I'm just talk to you as if you are a person. And maybe it does make a difference if I listen to the fullness of your story instead of thinking, well, oh, you just need to learn how to fill out applications. Well, I don't know that because I don't know them. Maybe they're they're brilliant and they've just hit hard times or maybe they do need that. But if I don't get to know the person, sure. then I don't know that. But I do think that if we're if we're not careful, if we don't take into account our worldview, that's not to insult yourself of like, you should feel bad if you're middle class or higher class. No, right, no. I think that you just have to take that into account when you're stepping into places. Maybe you're coming in with that middle class mindset of, well, if you just work hard, then it works out. That's sure. what it was put to me, like in the schools I went to is if you work hard, it'll work out. That's not true. And so I need to break up with that line of thinking if I'm going to step into any kind of sure. justice work or any kind of help work. Well, yeah, uh, I agree with you. And I think that um, you, I think that what I wish, my hope would be for us in this world to interact with each other from a standpoint of curiosity, mm -hmm. right? Because psychologically we develop these propensities and profiles of people and what they're gonna be like when we encounter them. But when you allow that to lead, you give up opportunities to be naturally curious about what brought a person to where they are. Mm -hmm. And until I'm a person who believes that our story is made beautiful by its complexity. Mm -hmm. Right. So if if I am telling a story as a woman who had a history and I was sexually abused or if I was a male who had a homosexual experience, um, every bit of my life, right, the triumph and the tragedy the good parts and the bad parts make up my whole story. And I think that when I approach relationships, I want to know the whole story. Mm -hmm. You know, when I approach my work, when I approach cases, I want to know the whole story. Yeah. Because it's important to know the whole story. And I think on a large scale, if we know the whole story, then we get to this place of empathy where we understand that you are not just the good parts of your life. Mm -hmm. You are not just the I, the things that went really well or the ideal parts of your life. You're the good parts and the not so good parts, right? Yeah. And until we get honest about telling the whole story, we don't really have a full understanding of each other and who we are. And then we run into different kinds of trouble mm -hmm. because we fall into the fallacy that we're better than others or that we're in a position to pass judgment on them and we're not, you mm -hmm. know? No, I love that because I think just what you're hitting on is that you're not able to see people in the fullness of their humanness if you're only boiling them down to those things. But then that does come into play. If I don't know that fullness, then that is also like, I can't know you mm -hmm. in your right. entirety. But then also sure. there is like I hear that caution in there, too, of like, don't boil people down to the bad things, whether it be the bad things that you've seen on Facebook or the bad things that that have that have happened. They're not the sum of those things either. Right. Um, and it, or they're not all the good things either. People are way more sure. complex than that. And we take away that complexity if we just boil it down to one or the other. Sure. 
And then, as we were talking about before the show started, it, we see this now more than ever, like we have a cancel culture. And the cancel culture's close cousin is, is something different, like making people invisible, mm. right? We tend to, you know, we talk about homeless people, like we, you know, the camp under the bridge, those people are homeless. But there are a lot of working class families in, in, in our communities that are that are that have degrees and went to school and have educations but they're homeless and if covid has shown us anything it's shown us that all americans are one paycheck or two paychecks or three paychecks away from being homeless and you know covid was in a lot of ways the great equalizer right like we are all close to poverty but isn't this isn't this isn't this ironic that every country, almost every country outside of America at one point or another saw America as this land of promise and opportunity. Mm -hmm. And in many ways it is, but how can that be if the vast majority of the nation now is close to poverty because of a six month pandemic or a seven month pandemic? What does that say? To me, that says that for too long, we have cast ourselves like if we had a choice to choose our poster, the American poster child, we measure ourselves by how the best of us are doing mm. and not by how the, the, the least of us are doing. And when you do that, you marginalize huge segments of our population and you make them invisible. But just because you've made them invisible doesn't mean they go away. Right? Right. Yeah. And so now COVID has kind of pulled back the blanket and mm. exposed this reality that America is not, everybody in America doesn't live like Donald Trump or Kim Kardashian. The vast majority of us live on the invisible side of the line for a lot of reasons. Yeah. So how do we fix that? Yeah, no, and I think for me, just from the, the people side of things, there was a hope in me, not that I want bad things to, to, to happen all the time, like, or bad things to happen, but tend to be the catalyst for change. But my hope was that, like, there would be this resurgence of empathy mm. that would come out of, wow, I'm unemployed and I want to work. Mm -hmm. I wonder if this is how someone else feels, like, or I am making choices that I haven't had to make before of, do I buy the groceries, do I not buy the groceries this time? Or, like, do I cut back or do I... So there was that piece of me that was hoping that there would be people who would, and I'm not saying that they haven't, because I don't know, mm -hmm. I can't, I can't speak for it, but I was hoping that there would be that that resurgence of empathy, of man, this is tough. Mm -hmm. This this is this isn't what I thought it was, or being on unemployment isn't what I thought it was, or or having to even sign up for it isn't what I thought it was. So I was kind of like I know that for me, like I am. My framework is always people, mm. and I and I always want to 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 take and like I always have these big hopes because like internally I'm the big old optimist <laughs> <laughs> that has become a little bit more realistic over time. But like I've, I've I've had that hope, and even with just COVID, with the backdrop of all the things that have happened with um, the marches and rallies around Black Lives Matter or around the movement, and has so many different names, but 
under those things too of like just that hope of like can we just get back to empathizing mm. and seeing each other as full human beings and and stepping towards people who are different than us because it's just like you said is in my world they can't be invisible if i'm walking towards them mm. because for me personally i'm not going to i don't see in my future like holding some huge office because my heart is in counseling but but what can I do in my world to make sure that there are no invisibles that I'm aware of? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Um, mm. So I love everything that you said there. And as you mentioned that you became a lawyer mm -hmm. and then you moved down here. Mm -hmm. And so what kind of law do you practice or what's your specific branch of law sure no um right now i have a general practice i practice civil litigation um i don't do much criminal defense but some of the other lawyers in my practice do um in my office do we share office space but we have different practices and um i do business litigation i do a lot of uh, business consulting on the employment law issues and things mm -hmm. like that and um that's been kind of fun the liberty of it but if you don't mind uh, Giovanna, I want to go back to something you said because yeah. you raised two important questions to mm -hmm. me when you were talking. You said I had hoped yeah. that that we would have more empathy coming out of COVID nineteen, and so I wonder. My first question would be, why do you why do you talk about that in the past tense? <laughs> and and then you said, I wanted us to get back to empathy and so my question would be when were we ever empathetic yes. as a nation as a country yes so the first question that i had hoped i in speaking of it in the past tense and that's like so funny because that's like complete like freudian slip like slippage <laughs> but i think i haven't seen it i think i saw glimmers of it and then it instantly went back to dehumanizing Mm -hmm. on my timeline and so there was a point of seeing people really be like oh man like this is hard and like oh we love teachers and oh thank you essential workers and oh man we're in this together and then it just had this sharp pivot of like now my hands are on your throat and you are against me and you are preventing me and it's your problem and it's your fault and i'm like what happened um <laughs> so is that and i think that that is a lot of things. I think that's the current climate. I think that's lack of skills. It's a whole lot of things. The you the the thing of going back to empathy. I I would like to believe that probably wasn't in ever in my lifetime, but I would like to believe that there was a point in time where there was more empathetic people. Because I feel like there's not a whole lot of us. And from things I've read there, they tend to blame like the technology era, but that is a good question of like, did it ever exist um, in our context? Um, Cause I think you would have to go really far back to see it. And so, but I think it's our, our human core. So I would like to, to think that we would go back to, cause I think there's something in us that wants to, that needs to relate to other people that needs to be able to be in community and, being in connection leads to that. Um, and as we get further and further and more individualistic, mm. then so maybe it was like way far away, but I don't think I've seen it in my particular lifetime because I grew up with a lot of dehumanizing language that I didn't identify until I was older. Mm. I, I think that the empathy exists in faith-based communities and organizations. And so my faith tells me that that kind of empathy and connection is still possible 
But when I look at us as a society and I think about where we have come from along the civil rights continuum and all the way up, right up until now, until Black Lives Matter, I see us as being a very polarized nation. And what is the way, is there a way, and I'm asking you this question as a, you know, given your professional background now, is there a way to create empathy on a grand scale? Or is mm. that the type of thing that you create one heart at a time? Yeah, I see it more as a ground up thing, but I also think there's power in modeling it. And so it is to me something that is like we talked earlier when we were talking about like emotional intelligence and being taught. And I think that that is something that we have to cultivate internally mm. and that can happen on a peer to peer level. But I also think it makes a crazy difference if it's being modeled for you by leadership. If, if it's happening like in your workplace and you have a, a culture of it. And so I do think that it has to be ground up plus almost like a, not like a requirement, but something that's in like our, like this is how we interact with each other. And that's even in the way we ask questions of instead of like, oh, this person did this. It's, it's that, well, you're, you're accurate, but let's also take into consideration them. Let's take into consideration their background, what's going on for them. And there's balance because you don't want to be, because you can swing on the far other side of where everything is okay. And it's like, well, they're having a bad day. That's why they like pushed me down. It's like, mm, it still doesn't make it okay. So there is nuance in even empathy, but we can't teach you that nuance if you don't have the base. Does that make sense? Mm. But I do think it is both. I think it's that peer-to-peer -peer level, that internal peer-to-peer -peer level, and then just leadership down. Mm -hmm. But my hope is that it will go from the bottom up, and that is a harder journey of it going from the bottom up. But I do think it's possible if we do go from ground up. Well, I, I think you definitely make a good point because the tone of our nation is really different you know, depending on who's leading it. <laughs> Our country is more divided now, in my opinion, more divided than it's ever been in history since I've really been alive. But each in each and every president, the tone of their leadership kind of sets the atmosphere, right? And um, you said two things that stuck out to me are leadership and culture. And I've been answering the question a lot of why I'm running for office and what makes me want to be the district attorney. And that those two words, there's so many reasons, but those two words really are kind of like um, the center of the wheel that the spokes kind of rotate and mm -hmm. the wheel kind of rolls around. Because it's my idea that if we change our attitudes about prosecution, crime, the commission of crime, do more to and talk about the people that are committing crimes, also continue to, while continuing to, of course, protect victims of crime, mm -hmm. then I think if we'll have a more intelligent criminal justice system, and it's and if we get to a place where we can stop treating people in cases like widgets, um, but people, and start looking more, focusing more on qualitative outcomes, like you said earlier about listening to people's stories and mm -hmm. listening to their lives um, and hearing them talk about things like improvement and safety, security, stability, protection, um, instead of looking at statistics and conviction rates and yeah. numbers, units, um, percentages, I think we, I think we'll see a change. Um, and I, th I've kind of been thinking about this a lot over the course of the past several months. Of course, I've had to 
but this is the kind of thing I think about in my spare time. And I want it makes me want to ask you this. Um, when you talk about empathy and it being a matter of leadership down ideally, but hoping we could start on the micro level and work up. Do you think that empathy and leadership is a is is gender specific? Hmm. That's a good question. I do think just based off of my perspective that it's easier for women because we are almost taught and cultivated to be social mm -hmm. and read other people. And you know, if you even think about like probably like when we were growing up, the toys and the games that little girls are pushed to of like playing house and mm -hmm. <laughs> playing like and playing with certain things. Like I think that women have that that push towards being more social and reading other people and reading situations. And like that is like almost like a precursor to empathy because if I start reading a situation, I'm like, ooh, that person's in a bad mood. Yeah. So they just yelled at me. Maybe maybe they came in like that, you know, and like you you almost build off of that. So I, and I do think that men can have it, but I think that men aren't necessarily pushed in that direction as much. But I do also think that there is a natural like empathy. Like I do believe in there being more empathetic people who are highly sensitive and they're just wired that way. But I do think teaching wise, we do kind of like push women to be more of like, predict other people's needs, know what other people are thinking and feeling and doing. And that can go south because sometimes when we're like, I know, and like, you don't really know what they were thinking. Like you think you know, but you don't really know. Um, and so I do think that it sometimes comes out as gender specific, but I think it's because it's taught that way. There was a, a study that I read a long time ago about the difference between boys and girls at the infant stage. And what they found is that girl, like boys like to play with toys that light up and things that things that go and mm -hmm. that think they can control and push and stuff like that. Whereas girls were more responsive to nuances like people's smile, their mm -hmm. facial features. Like they were more likely to be engaged when they were interacting with someone mm -hmm. who was engaging them in a really connected way. Yeah. And so I think to the the idea that maybe it can start even that early mm -hmm. is profound. But knowing these things kind of makes us more prepared, one would think. But um, I every every Friday for during campaign season, we have the candid conversations. I think you mentioned that you may might have watched one of those. And one of our upcoming sessions is on um, how women lead, mm -hmm. right? Um, whether women in politics and in you know high profile um, positions, whether they tend to lead differently than their male counterparts and really what we can learn about different styles of leadership and more empathic, more empathic styles of leadership. And I mean, of course, if, if, um, Democrats around this nation, myself included, are excited about the possibility of having a female mm -hmm. <laughs> um, as part of the presidential team. I think that means a lot in a in a visible way. Um, but I but I think that's why uh, teachers tend to be 
historically teachers tend to be female, mm -hmm. nurses um, historically tend to be female because those are the more empathetic professions and nurturing professions, I'll say. Um, but what happens when, when we get women who lead? How does that change? Is that a possibility for us, let's say, yeah. to see this empathy from the top down? If it's true that leadership sets the tone, Mm -hmm. Does that we should be excited about the fact that maybe there might be more um, empathy and intuitiveness or, you know, maybe not. Maybe by the time you get to that level, the system has kind of gotten that empathy out of you. Yeah. You know, I don't know, but I'll be interested to see um, what leadership is like going forward. If it's true that the future is female and uh, and, and I believe it is, um, I'm interested in that and what that means for us, yeah. you know. No, and I think that like even what you're highlighting is just how important it is that we learn from each other because there's things stylistically that I might do that I've picked up along the way and that what if we're not enemies, but we want to, as you put it, approach each other with curiosity. Mm. And what if I look at the way you handle a situation instead of say, I wouldn't do it like that. It would be, I wouldn't do it like that. Help me. Help me understand why you chose to do it that way. Mm. Like, I think there is so much, like, I feel like there's a purpose and there's a reason why we all see the world different. And if we could just mm -hmm. not um, see each other as enemies, which I don't think every single person is. I do think there are some people who are walking this out, who have businesses and practices where they're doing this work and they're doing the hard work of it because being around people who think differently than you isn't necessarily easy. Mm. Unity is not frolicking through flowers. I wish it was. And if someone told you that, they, they lied. lied. And I'm sorry to be the one to bust that bubble. But sure. unity is hard work. Unity is messy. And I think that we we push away messy. So I love that you're having these conversations. And I would love for, you know, towards, like, as we begin to wrap up for you to let people know where they can hear those because I think being able to listen to people who are who have different ideas or who have something that you agree with makes a world of difference because then we're able to kind of fully understand mm. more because we're not all wired the same. And I think that's for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I want to ask you this question because your comment makes me think about this in myself. One of the things that my biggest pet peeve when it comes to dealing with humans, and I've interacted as an introvert, I've interacted with a lot of people on this campaign trail. But one of my biggest pet peeves is when people are, are close-minded, mm. ignorant in the way that they rush to judgment about a person mm -hmm. without having the full story. Um, I find that hurtful and mm -hmm. I find it offensive. And it is one of the things that, you know, when you put yourself up for a public office or platform, people often make judgments about you that are not based on anything other than the fact that they feel it. That yeah. angers me, mm -hmm. you know? I had a interaction or received communication from somebody um, on a platform just last night and she, this person had had a, a difficult experience with another lawyer that I know. And because I know the lawyer, she said, I wouldn't have voted for Shalina Jones if I knew she 
knew this person. And I thought, what a crazy thing to say, you know? Um, So I wonder, as we're talking about understanding people and having greater insight and being sensitive, in your profession, you deal with so many people. Mm -hmm. Um, What is your biggest pet peeve, I guess, in that you see the most in human behavior? Like, what's the thing that ticks you off about people the most? (laughs) And it's it's so hard because, like, I struggle with a lot of, like, that over-understanding. And so even in, like, my personal work, it's like, because I'll understand, and it's like, but you can still be mad. And so because I'm like, oh, but I understand why. Like, when I use that example of the empathy, I was talking about myself. Because I can't be very much like, but they were having a bad day. Like, they didn't mean to. But I think the biggest thing for me is my biggest pet peeve, and it's like really it's an odd because it's like a I think it's like highly nuanced is when we're not talking about the same thing. That frustrates me. Um, Tell me more. What is that like mean? if if I say you know like the apples and oranges like if I make a statement and then you respond with something left field and it's like we're not talking about the same. Why'd you do that? And it's in like. For some degree, I think that you did that because you think we're talking about the same thing, or maybe you just meant to do that. But I, I sometimes like to err on more benefit the doubt for my own sanity. Um, but that is my biggest thing is if we're not talking about the same thing, or if someone approaches me a lot, like what you're saying, if someone approaches you and they don't understand you fully, or they like one little action or you being a proximity to someone else leads to a belief about you. Mm. It's like, that's, that's a conversation that you could have had with me. And that's even like, we're not even on Mm -hmm. the same page. And so being not on the same page and not talking about the same thing, I think Mm. is for me. But you did bring up something interesting that like, I don't know what it feels like to run for public office. So what have been the highs and lows of that? What's the high of running for office and what's the low of running for office? The high of running for office is most definitely when I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because my campaign manager is here and she could tell she could probably tell you in chapter in verse everything <laughs> that I'm about to say, because she's also the person who knows me the best in the world, including my husband. And he'll agree with that. Cause, mm-hmm. um, but the high of a campaign uh, for me, there have been a lot, but by far, I guess. Um, is when a when a when an idea comes together, mm. right? I have the inside of my head. My thoughts are very fluid, you know. And to to be a person who has the words to describe what they want to see or are trying to bring about, but not always be able to make that crystal is really frustrating. So when you have a big concept that you're working with, like what it means to fight for justice, for example, which is the theme for our general election campaign. It's that we we fight for justice for all, not just for the victim, but this idea of that justice is for everyone, like mm-hmm. fairness is for everyone. And what it takes to create a fair system a lot of times I have these thoughts that are shh. Mm-hmm. The, the artist, the sociologist, the minister, the lawyer are shooting these images and ideas back and forth. And I'm using plain language, but I just can't convey it so someone can catch it. Mm-hmm. And the moments where it comes together and it's like that aha moment, yeah. like you're trying to create a visual. Um, and it's like, 
yes, that pegs it. That's what we're trying to say. We're trying to go there. Or the time that I'm having a conversation with someone on the campaign trail and they just get it, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, they just get it. And the human part of them resonates with the human part of me. Yeah. I know that I'm not up here in some political space talking about theory and philosophy. It's like we're two humans connecting on the fact that some things really suck, mm-hmm. you know? And with your good brain and my good brain, we could come together and come up with a solution that is good for everyone. Um, those are high points on the campaign trail for me to know that I've connected with people and for them to know that they're, what they have said to me resonates with me in a real way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I say that I'm running because there's always that, people attribute that statement to Gandhi, but I understand it's not really his, like be the change you wanna see. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, whoever the statement comes from, like that's what I'm doing, yeah. right? I believe. When I see, when I see young children selling water bottles in the middle of the intersection in the summer, um, when I see mothers trying to work hard to figure out what they're going to do with their kids and how they're going to keep their kids out of trouble while they work mm-hmm. during COVID, when I see women who are victimized in domestic violence, children who are victimized. I, when I see businesses that are vandalized, when I see people who are hurting, I see, I feel that, you know? I feel that even when I don't want to, I feel it deeply in a place that's deeper than knowledge. Um, I feel it deeply and to be able to to get to the heart of what matters and talk about people's hurt and have them feel understood and accepted is a huge part of not just the campaign, but of my life and who I am. And that's what I hope that, you know, I bring, you know, to this experience. And I'll be feeling deeply mm-hmm. and having these same thoughts and conversations, whether I'm in that chair on January 1st or not, you yeah. know, because I just think that they're important connections to make. And what would you say the lows have been for you? The tireless schedule is one from a practical standpoint. There's just not enough hours in a day to be a mom, a wife, a friend, a minister, a daughter, a granddaughter. And my biggest fear is not being there for the people that I really love and the people that really matter when they need me. So that's a practical standpoint, but in the society we live in, probably everybody has to deal with that. The low is, for me personally, is having to feel like putting myself out there. When you put yourself out there and ask people to vote for you, what you're really doing is asking them to put their stamp of approval on you. Mm -hmm. And it makes you vulnerable, you know? Brene Brown, who's one of my favorite authors and TED speakers, she talks about vulnerability in a a very profound way. And um, nobody likes to be vulnerable, right? Because we feel weak and open and exposed. And that's the toughest part to deal with when you know that there are going to be people who don't like you or won't vote for you 
for no other reason at all, then they just don't, you know? Mm. Um, to know that there are gonna be people out there who won't give me a chance for whatever reason and to not be, to not feel hurt by that. That's yeah. a hard part of campaigning because um, you're constantly putting yourself and your message and your thoughts out there. And for someone who's like me, like a an empath and an introvert yeah. who, I'm married to my thoughts, yeah. you know? Um, to be put out there for public consumption is hard. It's hard. It's yeah. hard. And, you know, people say that when you're campaigning in politics, you have to have thick skin. Maybe you do. I wouldn't say that my skin is thin, but I think that having, we got to be careful about growing thick, thick skin because it makes us insensitive mm -hmm. and um, inflexible. And in a lot of ways, being sensitive and, and, and intuitive is a good place to be. So finding that balance is a challenge. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing those. I think that everything that you've shared here today just highlights, you know, vulnerability, you know, of sharing what it was like growing up and, and what it's like to be you and what it's like to see the world through your lens. So I, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you sharing so openly and like having this conversation with me. Um, this is probably like the third or fourth time that we've talked, but you're very easy to talk to. I feel like we oh, could probably keep on talking. I, I probably could. I, <laughs> I could talk you under the table. No, probably. And I believe, and I, and I would enjoy About it. these kinds of things, you know yeah. what I mean? Because yeah. I feel like these are the kinds of things that matter. No, and I really enjoy it. Like, I really enjoyed it. And I... Um, I'm always honored when people are willing to come in and talk and share because um, it's not easy. And and I think that I do want to honor that. And so we as we always wrap up these podcasts, we ask our guests to give a challenge to our listeners. So what would your challenge be to those listening to the podcast today? My challenge would be to tap in, tap in. And what I mean by that is we, because of COVID, because of uncertainty, because of job loss, loss of income, heightened use of social media, we can kind of numb out. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I would challenge people to tap in, tap into what makes them present. Tap into what makes them authentic. Tap into what makes them centered. Tap in, show up. Um, tap into the best and highest parts of yourself. Um, and that's what I, I, I aim to do that every day. Some days I get closer than others. Yeah. But be present. And I think that tapping in will allows us to believe that life will get better. Mm -hmm. That positive change is coming, mm -hmm. that there's some there's still a lot of good and in, in a lot of potential inside of all of us. So I, I say that partly because after the primary and before the general, I took a small break mm -hmm. to allow the runoffs to go by. And I get on Facebook and I'd be like, people would vote for me and all this political acrimony going back and forth. You just want to numb out to it. Yeah. Right. But tap in. I don't know if I can convey that well other than other than say it in that way. Tap in to the deepest 
most peaceful, most productive part of yourself. Turn all the other noise off and everything else that doesn't matter, everything else that you're not gonna care about in five days, years. Mm -hmm. Tune out to that and tap in to the inner part of yourself because I also believe that where we are right now in our society is we, we're, we are on the precipice of something great. We're the same way the industrial revolution changed how the world ran and then the technology age changed how the world ran. This is, can push us to something equally great, but we won't get there if we don't each and all tap into it. No. So tap in. Yeah. Tap in. Well, thank you so much for that. I love that. I love the, the challenge of being present because Be present. when we're present, like we are aware of what's going on around us and the things that we might be missing. So I love that sure. challenge from you. Tap in, tap in, be present. Yeah. And then of course, vote for me on November 3rd. <laughs> That's my challenge. Yes. Make sure you can get vote. as many people to the polls as possible. And you know what? I want you to vote. Yeah. If you've met, there are people out there who never voted before. There was a period of time when I thought voting was important. I want you to vote. Mm -hmm. I want you to vote against apathy this feeling that it won't make a difference. I want you to vote, vote. I don't, I care who you vote for, but, and I say that, but but the bigger part of me wants you to get active. Tap in, mm -hmm. we got a lot of living to do yet. Well, thank you so much for that. And I really appreciate you being here and sharing. And as always listeners, we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.